Welcome back to Chalkboard History. We're doing Volume 2. That's a lot of banging on the table. It's bad drumming. By the way. Bad drumming. Bad drumming. Hat tip, Bill Clark. Metallica's new album, 72 Seasons, just came out. It's Mm -hmm. awesome. Bill is a complainer. He whines about it. He doesn't fully appreciate the greatness of the guys from the Bay Area. Do you listen to the music that Bill listens to, though? Bill listens to the most... Bill's version of metal is like 80s pop. It's just regurgitated nonsense that Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer, and a variety of other really cool groups did years ago. I mean, your comparison to 80s pop instantly jumps out in my head. It's like, is as bad as his journey? Okay, we're not going to trash journey, but we will say it's like Boston. Okay? Fair enough. Boston, Fog Hat, you know, sort of stuff where it's like, okay, Led Zeppelin and Van Halen already did that, and what you guys are doing is not cool. But anyways, new Metallica album, last episode of The Mandalorian. Yep. You don't know what happened. I haven't watched it yet. Oh my gosh. Wait till you see it. Should I tell you? No. It's like that scene from The Simpsons when Homer comes out and he goes, No. Darth Vader really is Luke's father. No. And everybody's like, No. (gasps) Stop. All right. So let's talk about it's a nice day. Why are we sitting in here? Why are we, why am I stuck inside with you? Because you texted me and told me that we had to talk about the myths of the Battle of Franklin. I was just trying to make you happy since you've had a rough couple of weeks. I don't rough, but I was sick. Yeah, Yeah. you were sick, you were dying, you were dead. As I said, here lies (laughs) Jay Ricky, died of dysentery, June 2nd, 1861. It was COVID, but whatever. Not dysentery. What's this, like the eighth time you've had COVID? This is the second. Oh. Yeah. I yeah. thought you said it was the third. No, this is the second time. I probably had it a time before COVID was actually a real thing. <laughs> this is going to be like a myth itself. Do you remember when Joseph had COVID for the seventh time? It was really only the third. Right. It's like Optic being a hero. So let's talk about some of your favorite Franklin myths. What's the oh. what's the one we're not going to talk about? Hood on laudanum. Yeah, that's bleh, that's, that's we've put talked to bed. about that a bazillion times. So what's one of the biggest uh, myths or misconceptions about Franklin that persists to this very day? Um, I don't know that it's a myth, but I think it's a way of interpreting things. Is that everything is it's on Hood? Everything is on the Confederate Army in Tennessee. And this is one of the things that we alluded to in our leadership of the Army episode where we talked about always putting on the shades because why? Is it just the essence of cool? Listen, I, if, if you're just listening, you can't see the shenanigans that goes on. No, I just wanted to take them out of my pocket uh-huh. because they're bothering me. Uh, but we talked about You have new glasses. I do. I just got them last week. Nice. Um, I needed to be able to see just a little bit. This is you can see the ADD track here for both of us. This no, I don't have ADD. I'm just intentionally just moving around, just you know, for sport. It's my second episode. I've had a bunch of coffee, and we're talking about. We just got done talking about Earl Van Dorn and his indecencies, and now we get to talk about <laughs> how much you love Emerson Updike. That's it. All right. That's so what? what so sorry to interrupt seven times. 
It was eight, but whatever, Jim. All right, all right. Uh, so we talked about this in the leadership episode, how a lot of times when we look at battles, we interpret it through one side or we interpret, oh, you know, the Confederate Army of Tennessee, you know, they were just poorly led. Well, we never really think about who they were going up against. And there's John Schofield on the other hand. Now, John Schofield is not a premier combat leader. He's not John Bell Hood's equal on the battlefield, but he's a perfectly capable soldier. And he's got really, really good subordinates. And so the story, I think, the thing that has always sort of rubbed me the wrong way is when you hear about how it was the Army of Tennessee, it was their, you know, their day with destiny, it was the fate had led them to this moment. Well, the Army of the Cumberland and the Army of the Ohio certainly had a lot of things to say about it along the way, from Atlanta all the way to here. So the fight that takes place is not just a one-sided thing. It's not just all the decisions that Hood made or that his subordinates made or didn't make. It's very much about what the Federal Army did do. Mm -hmm. I think think that's one of the things that kind of is a problem. I know I've heard it all through the years, and one that I... It still pops up every now and then is that, you know, he wasn't at the front. I was like, well, why would he be at the front? John Schofield? Right. I mean, neither was Hood. Right. But, like, what commanding general's on the front? You know, Grant wasn't right up front, neither was Lee. I mean, that's not the role of the commanding general. And Schofield was preparing for the evacuation, but as as an indication, I had a... Actually, someone who worked for for us for a number of years, and she just had this disdain for Schofield, and and I always thought it was so puzzling because I've said this before. I was reminded years ago: you're never supposed to fall in love with dead people, but you're also not supposed to hate them. Mm-hmm. And she she disliked someone that she had never met, mm-hmm. and I, I guess I've just never understood that. But yes, he did. He had very able subordinates. You know, David, Jacob Cox is an incredible line officer, field officer to have. Right. And then there's Stanley. David Stanley's a perfectly capable corps commander. Yeah, and they've got good division commanders, they've got good brigade commanders. Mm-hmm. I mean it's a it's a solid you know, I was gonna say solid outfit, but really it's a it's a solid couple of outfits, the fourth and the twenty third corps. Um I think the one for me that's probably the most persistent today remains the power and allure of one Emerson Updike. Yes. And, you know, sadly, this continues to be reinforced, I think, by some people who are, who, who work in the field or who write about it, who just have never taken the time to analyze the Confederate breakthrough and how close Hood really came. So what mm-hmm. is it with this? You know, what is it with this Updike thing? Because Jacob Cox knew in the 1870s, I mean, Jacob Cox knew on the day of the battle, mm-hmm. but as he wrote in the 1870s, he was very well aware that it wasn't Updike and his men alone that had saved the day. Mm-hmm. Well, that's uh, and that's the common interpretation for a number of years. It's in Wiley Sword's book. It's in the McDonough book, Five Tragic Hours, is that Emerson Updike is like the the savior of the Battle of Franklin. Without him and the Federal line would have fallen apart and Hood would have marched to Nashville. That does a great deal of disservice to all of the other men on the Federal line, all of the artillery batteries that Aaron Baldwin is a perfect example, the gunners of the 20th Ohio Battery are a perfect example. And it is a giant slap in the face to James Riley and his brigade who perform a very similar counterattack on the other side of the road. And it's a disservice to the men of Wagner's division who were out front, who stood there and fought when they reached the main line, 
to say that there was just a giant gaping hole and nobody was fighting and along comes Emerson Opdyke and he, just his charge alone because he had been insubordinate earlier in the day. That's my other favorite myth and I was hoping we'd make our way around to it. Um, that he had been insubordinate earlier in the day, disobeyed his orders to take up a faulty position. Uh, and it's just through that that he's in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. I think the maybe why people are so drawn to it is it's a clean story and it's a real feel-goodism. You read the story, you hear the story, you go on a tour and all you can think is, wow, there's a real hero here. We love our heroes. So we actually have a few minutes and I don't think we've talked, at least in this format, in any substantive way about, so the the sort of lauding of of Updike and that, you know, his guys did it all, which I, I, I mean, I fell victim to that uh, even as I wrote my first book, is really all grounded through the account of John Schellenberger, mm-hmm. whose account comes way later. And I'm not going to say that Schellenberger um, was dishonest. I think that Schellenberger believed what he wrote. And Schellenberger was a, was a damn good researcher. He did a mm-hmm. lot of work about Spring Hill and Franklin that is pretty solid. So he may have seen some exchange between Wagner and Updike. But what really happened that afternoon between, you know, one o'clock-ish, two o'clock-ish, three, you know, in that two and a half or three hour mm-hmm. period from when the back end of Wagner's division gets there and Wagner establishing where his two brigades are and where Updike is, what really happens there um, before the fighting begins. Well, this sounds like such a terrible cop-out, but we'll probably never know exactly everything that took place because both George Wagner and Emerson Opdyke did a terrible job of recording the day's events. Only in his letters to his wife is Opdyke completely transparent. Those letters to Lucy on, I think, it's the 2nd and the 6th of mm-hmm. December. And then only in his immediate correspondence with his brigade commanders is Wagner very transparent about what unfolded. So by 2 o'clock in the afternoon, out front of the Federal Earthworks in Franklin, a half mile, 500 yards removed from the breastworks, are Colonel John Lane and Joseph Conrad's brigades, probably close to 3,500 or so men. The rest of the division, 1st Brigade, Opdyke's men, are to the north of the Carter House at the base of the hill uh, today where Franklin P. Uh, Police Department headquarters So is. let me interrupt for a second. Yeah. They end up north of the Carter House, and there's a reason why. Mm-hmm. So the common story, still told by some, because some people don't read anything new or reread anything old, is that Updike disobeyed orders. Mm-hmm. Schellenberger's account reinforced, well, reinforces it. His is kind of the origin. It's the foundation for it, yeah, certainly. Except what's right in front of us and has been all along is that David Stanley ordered Wagner to relieve Updike mm-hmm. because Updike had been on the rear guard, really the, the tip of the spear, if you will, all the way up from Spring Hill, and he ordered him to be relieved from the rear guard. Mm-hmm. How has how did nobody pick up on that for so long? Well, I think because it didn't fit the story that had already been so prevalent, mm. it was easy to just cast it aside. Mm-hmm. Because you read the first portion of that order is to Wagner's to hold the heights he occupies unless severely pressed. Well, uh, until t- dark. Right. 
<laughs> until dark and then remove with the rest of the army. But when you leave off the back half of that, the before dark and relieving Emerson Opdyke, it puts all of the onus on Wagner to know what's really pressed is, to know how to fight, to be in the right place at the right time. And so when he does make the mistake, it's easy to look at that order. So what? Well, so, he was just disobeying his own command. So what he actually does do is follows the tenor of Stanley's mm-hmm. directive. Very much the spirit of the order. Right, which is Absolutely. hold the heights, mm-hmm. and he does until probably 1 to 2 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And then those two brigades continue to operate as the rear guard on mm-hmm. that position a half mile south of the main line. And Updike was... Placed re- in support, right, in reserve right, to the rear guard. In of the reserve. Yep. One of the things that Updike wrote that, and he writes to his wife, is that he mentioned how Updike trembled with fear. Yeah. Right. Now, that's Updike's interpretation. I'm not sure that Wagner could have easily been frightened, but I, I do think Updike is true in the sense that Wagner was shaking mm-hmm. and you know and pressure manifests itself in a lot of different ways mm-hmm. here's a guy who I, I bet hadn't slept for i know at least 24 hours if mm-hmm. not a couple of days and everybody's worn out yeah okay and he's rattled you know he can see what's beginning to develop to the south but he like everyone else doesn't think that hood's going to do this and um you know, I think sometimes one can put a little too much into a single account, a single line. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you're right. We'll probably never know because right. and then the, the, there's a good bit of CYA going on after yeah. the battle, and especially one, on Wagner's part. One of the other things that becomes so pre- prevalent, too, in, in later years, I'm talking in the last 30 and 40 years interpretation-wise, is... They've added dialogue. People have added dialogue between George Wagner and Emerson Opdyke. <laughs> Go ahead and fight wherever you want, you curly-headed Dutchman. Well, the fun thing is, is that Emerson Opdyke wasn't called a curly-headed Dutchman. Joseph Conrad was. And, and that's out of Schellenberger's account. That's out of Schellenberger's account. And I think it's reinforced by Levi Tucker Schofield just a couple of years later. But Schofield's account, too, is kind of fraught with some little errors, too. But that's really splitting hairs. Uh, so I, I think that the Opdyke wagner controversy goes back to Schellenberger, certainly. And then it kind of grows its own legs because when Opdyke does move into the breach and he does reinforce the secondary line, the reserve line, then he starts to hear, Opdyke saved the day. And he writes that in a letter to his wife. All around, people are saying how I saved the day, how my, my brigade saved the day. And it's, it's hard, I think. 30 years later, 20 years later for him to realize that maybe he wasn't the only one responsible. Oh my gosh. I just, uh, a few weeks ago, had someone who had their, you know, version of Updike saving the day shattered because he mentioned that he has Don Troiani's <coughs> uh, painting, Updike's Tigers, right? Mm-hmm. Which I have. I have it on my wall. Yeah, I, I have it on my wall. And I said, well, the great thing about that painting is it really depicts... I think the action right there in the Carter House yard incredibly well. Except there's a problem. Updike wasn't at the front with a revolver in his hand. And he said, what? And I said, listen, man, I didn't know it when I bought the painting. But if you read his letters to his wife, Mm -hmm. he's in the rear rear herding the men forward. He actually says he has a musket in his hand. And only as he begins bucking for a promotion weeks later. It changes. The story changes very quickly. Right. He begins (laughs) writing about how he was a front and busted the pistol over someone's head. And I was like, oh my gosh. So Updike is not at all 
um, unwilling to change the narrative mm-hmm. to his own benefit. Which is what Jacob Cox tells him. I think it's in September of 1882. My dear Emerson, your memory of events have been distorted by time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would argue probably disillusioned too. Right. But yeah, I think those are two of the big ones for me. And then the, you know, was George Wagner drunk? Was John Bell Hood on laudanum? Well, ah, ah, you just said it. I know, but when you reduce it down to the drunkard versus the druggie, the story, the understanding of the battle, all of it gets lost in, we were calling the Van Dorn episode the, uh, as Spring Hill turns, we should call it as uh, Days of Franklin or something, because it, it just seems like the whole, the whole story is about them and not about the fight, not about the men who were there, and not about the actual, the... The facts that were unfolding. Well, even in recent years, if you get people beyond uh, laudanum with Hood, right. they'll still want to denigrate just his ability as an officer or mm. as a commander. And and listen, he's he's perfectly open to all sorts of criticism. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he yeah. shouldn't have been in command of the Army of Tennessee, but he was. Yeah, and. Was he any more of a miserable failure than you know this one as we covered? In yeah. a pro- I, I don't think so. So I think one of the other um, you know misconceptions or myths about Franklin is that the Confederates you know really never had a chance. And for fifteen minutes they sure as hell did. Well, I would <laughs> I think for longer than even fifteen minutes. I mean, Hood holds the initiative mm-hmm. for really almost two months. Mm-hmm. You know, it is it is easy to forget with, with the uh, opportunity of hindsight because if you go from November 30th to December 16th, it just looks like a Confederate, you know, butt kicking. Mm-hmm. But he held the initiative. From October to November. From October to November. And there is that moment, even after the debacle at Spring Hill, where had it not been for some of these new troops and Updike's men, you know, Hood could have pulled off what would have been really a, just a ridiculous kind of victory. Does it change the outcome of the war? I don't think so. But I think that's the most important context to mm-hmm. look at Franklin. I was talking to someone recently about the Battle of Murfreesboro and looking at how important that was. When Bragg just kicks the hell out of Rosecrans on that first day, Mm -hmm. it's easy to forget because Bragg doesn't do a job the next day. He just sort of stalls out. Mm -hmm. And then on the third day, the Confederate Army collapses. But he had, within a whisker um, of of achieving what he had hoped for, and this was kind of the the pattern of the Army of Tennessee, Mm -hmm. and, and... so it doesn't change the outcome, but to put it into context of how close it was, and the guys who understood this were the men who participated, mm-hmm. and in particular, John Schofield, down through his subordinates to the rank and file. They they knew. In fact, mm-hmm. I remember years ago reading about how a guy in the Fourth Corps had said we'd spent two and a half years fighting from Nashville to Atlanta. And we just gave it up in two months. And Sherman and his pets are marching across Georgia getting all the glory. And now we're having to do the heavy lifting in Middle Tennessee. And 
I think we have to continue to reinforce that because some of these things are generational issues. Mm -hmm. It's been clouded interpretation or fragmented interpretation. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think about the fact that years ago, the three sites in this area, Carter House, Carnton, and Ripa Villa, as late as 2009, all had three separate interpretations. Mm -hmm. All of it disconnected, sometimes at odds. And you know, you could you could ask someone about Emerson Updike or John Bell Hood and get literally three different answers. Three answers yeah. You could hear in one day that Hood was on Laudanum, that Wagner was drunk, and that the war had nothing to do with slavery. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could hear all those then things. Then go next door and hear <clears throat> the exact opposite. Yeah. Right. And so I think that this is a generational kind of um, progression. I, I certainly have long believed that what happened here is as consequential <clears throat> as anything in the war because you mm -hmm. don't get to the end the way that the end unfolded without this mm -hmm. happening. So what else about Franklin? What else do you hear or have experienced that is something that needs oh. to be like, you know, how could we go an Broken entire down. episode without mentioning him? But the fact that Forrest Cavalry, or the idea that Forrest Cavalry could have flanked around John Schofield and Hood should have waited for his artillery to come forward and attacked in the morning after Forrest had led a successful flanking maneuver behind him. Uh, on, on the surface, if you ignore all the other factors that the earthen fords were washed out, that Schofield was waiting for a bridge. Yeah, maybe Forrest could have done it. If you ignore the fact that Thomas John Wood's infantry division had already dispen had been dispatched to guard against a flanking maneuver uh, over there, and that Wilson's cavalry was already operating in the air, yeah, I guess it kind of makes a little sense. But what about the artillery? Artillery, you can't use that in an offensive charge. If yeah, Hood's going to go across the field, it's not like his guns are going to roll up and support behind it. I don't hear the forest um, angle much anymore. I mean, it's certainly yeah. a lot less than it was. But artillery is one that comes up, you know, a little more regularly. And mm -hmm. my answer has always been, I don't think it much mattered if Hood had all of his artillery. Mm -hmm. Because Lee certainly had everything he required on that third day at Gettysburg and fired for the better part of two two hours or two hours plus and it didn't amount to a hill of beans. Mm -hmm. I don't think the artillery from an offensive standpoint was really ever going to achieve much. So and almost everyone who I've explained that to or talked with about it then, you know, I think better understands the role of mm -hmm. artillery. Um, Franklin it's interesting how <clears throat> think about how Gettysburg suffered from how participants of the battle redrafted the narrative. Mm -hmm. I think that Franklin suffers much less today, but has suffered for exactly the opposite approach. It wasn't the participants. In fact, the participants were virtually ignored. Like to go back to mm -hmm. Updike, Jacob Cox's version was ignored. Mm -hmm. And somehow Updike is the one who gets elevated. You know, up to the, to the to the pantheon of heroes, mm -hmm. um, Hood on Laudanum, I can tell you, is exclusively a Middle Tennessee creation. Mm -hmm. it, it grew out of this area. Pat Claiborne's little fan club, really, it, it was was um, was built in Franklin. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that that's where he takes on, you know, well, he's the fallen hero. And, you know, goodness, Claiborne was a great division commander, but, um, you know, he's he's it's gotten to the point where he should have been in command of the army. That's what right. I hear all the time is, right. well, Shfora should have been in command, which is silly. Claiborne should have been in command. Well, he mm-hmm. hasn't even commanded a corps um, except temporarily. So, you know, if you weren't going to pick Hood, I mean, you could use A.P. Stewart. You could pick maybe Frank Cheatham. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, the, the the ranks are pretty thin. But mm-hmm. um, I think Franklin, I think Franklin 20 or 30 years from now um, will be, well, certainly in a better place even than it is now. But I think finally, I told my board this years ago, I wanted people when they thought about coming here that they thought about Franklin like they think about Shiloh, Gettysburg, mm-hmm. Vicksburg, Antietam. One word. And they knew exactly what it meant. And that's what I think we've been able to achieve by allowing people to... Sam Hood said years ago, why would anybody want to go to Franklin? It's portrayed as a mass suicide. Right. Hood was an idiot. Right. And I'm like, you're right. It wasn't that... And if you make it into something that's stupid and never should have happened, who wants to visit? Mm-hmm. So what else? Anything else in the closing moments? I think I think it's less about myths and maybe it's just about in not only your interpreting of sources, but your evaluation of those sources. That's one of the things I know you tease me. You call me the professor. I went to school for this. This is what I do. But one of the things that we learned in grad school was how to evaluate a source based on all kinds of merit, not only that, but when it was written, who it was written by, what kind of bias there might have been. I think a lot of that would help the average visitor, the average reader, Civil War history, those people that are willing to really seriously engage with it. And then it sounds strange to say it, but to some of the more academics that are in the field and that are writing books about Franklin and publishing and writing magazine articles about Franklin, it also pays to walk the ground and interpret it for, for what it is, not just an open flat field. Because I think when, before I had ever come here, whenever I read about Franklin or when I was writing about it myself, I had this idea in my mind that the ground was perfectly flat, that there were the earthworks and it was perfectly flat. Then there was a hill and there was Wagner's line that was perfectly flat. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But when you get out and you walk on it, all of a sudden you realize not only is the landscape unfolding in front of you, yeah, there's buildings, I get that, but you can work past all of that stuff and see the ground for what it was, walk the ground, be there, be present, talk to the interpreters, work with the people on the staff, consult the collection. That's also true at Spring Hill. You be, you see how topography would mask mm-hmm. line of sight and sound mm-hmm. and thus your ability to understand what was happening or what was not happening <clears throat> I think the other thing with Franklin and we can probably end with this is to limit one's bias I mean I think everybody probably has a little bit of bias like do you like Carter House more or do you like Carnton more or do you mm-hmm. like Spring Hill more or do you like Franklin more or is Ripavilla cooler than you know the Hermitage mm-hmm. or Carnton I always feel strange when I have to answer that question yeah, yeah. it is because I, I try not to have biases and I go mm-hmm. back to like what Jubal Early was doing in the early days of Gettysburg mm-hmm. Jubal Early had an agenda and he had a bias mm-hmm. okay and his bias was aimed at Longstreet 
and his agenda was to protect Lee. Mm -hmm. And then you have later people who, let's say, only focused on Claiborne's division. Mm -hmm. Okay, that was it, you know, or Claiborne, or just the Confederate perspective. What about the other five? Uh, yeah. Right, right. And I've found out there were instances I was wrong. You know, I was wrong in how I looked at something, and it's wonderful to be able to find something. I mean, it's not wonderful to find out that you're wrong, but it's wonderful when you find something that actually shows you what the truth mm -hmm. is. And Franklin is a is a is a raucous kind of insanity that I was just describing for someone on a tour. The war has lasted three and a half years. The political strife had been going on for decades. And there's about 90 to 120 minutes at Franklin. I mean, it's like so quick. And my God, it must have been like an eternity. There, there's an account from a soldier who was at Antietam and he talked about how he watched the sun move through the sky. And he said at one point it seemed like the sun had reversed direction. Mm -hmm. And that the day seemed to be caught in this, in this like time warp. Mm -hmm. And we talk about Franklin on a 60 minute tour. And it struck me that in 60 minutes, I just covered everything that happened from four to five o'clock and what had happened between four and five o'clock. All this time is condensed into this little ball of just mm -hmm. awfulness. And that's also, I think, very critical. So you pull Hood away and you put Schofield away and you don't talk about Forrest and you don't talk about, you know, the boys or, you know, the Yankees or whatever. And you get right down to this is what we were doing to each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that is also maybe not men covered in myth or misinterpreted um, or just misunderstood, mm -hmm. but sometimes we miss what's right in front of us and that this is what we were really, really, really doing to mm -hmm. each other. And I know I got that when I walked the ground. There was something, I said this before, I don't know that it's really like holy ground, but it certainly is hallowed ground. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is ground that you can feel it and that's why I think getting down to the like to the heart of the matter is the most important thing because people then leave I think understanding what the veterans themselves wanted us to understand. Mm -hmm. I told a group the other day that they wanted you to come to Civil War battlefields to understand what happened and to understand we should never be so stupid ever again ever again we should never do this to one another never again. that's why they became pacifists after the war many did yeah, yeah they hated war and it isn't it interesting that so many of the civil war vets were a lot like world war ii vets who questioned vietnam who questioned iraq who mm -hmm. questioned afghanistan they didn't question anybody's motives or their patriotism or their belief in mm -hmm. right or wrong but they were always very hesitant to engage in the worst of human conflict, which is to kill each other with big weapons in as large a number as possible. And that's probably as important today to remember as anything. You know, as people talk about, ah, we're so close to another civil war. I'm like, stop. Yeah. First of all, I don't, I don't think there's any evidence indicating that we are. But God help us. We should never go down that road again. Any last thoughts, Professor? I, th I think you've summed it up far beyond my... My poor power to add or detract, so go ahead. 
Well, I think that's it. Volume two on this. Uh, what is it? It's Wednesday, right? It is Wednesday. It's Wednesday, April something. I just paid my taxes the other day. Ugh. That's rough. Uh, it's rough. It's terrible. I mean, I guess it could be worse. You know, you could be there on the first of December, eighteen sixty-four, right? Yeah. 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 There's always a worse way to spend a day. There's always a worse way to spend a day. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening and watching.